The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, Episode 24. Welcome to The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. I'm your host, Dr. Yishai Barkadari, psychologist and adaptability coach to entrepreneurs and business leaders. I believe that working on your business is more important than working in your business. If you want to achieve your business goals and dreams without the cost and pain of having to make every mistake yourself, then The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is the podcast for you. I'm here to help you learn from the lessons of entrepreneurs and business leaders to help you work on yourself and your business so that you can save time, energy, and grow faster. For those of you new to the show, The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai presents three new episodes each week on Insight Sunday we dive into the minds of business leaders through insightful guest interviews. On Story Tuesday, we dig deeper with them and learn firsthand from their stories, hard-earned lessons, and experience. On Thrive Thursday, it's just you and me on the couch, where you'll hear scientific research, my thoughts, and tangible tactics to adapt and grow yourself and your business. Grab a proverbial seat and listen up so you can learn from the minds and mistakes business leaders and apply their wisdom to your life and business. Welcome to Thrive Thursday with Dr. Yishai. This week I had Amber Furman, founder of Furman Law, and her coaching company, Success Development Solutions, where she focuses on uncovering the meaning of success, finding fulfillment, and living your best life. On Insight Sunday, Amber shared her journey from hiding herself to defining and owning her success and fulfillment. She talked about the methods and costs of ignoring or boxing up your own feelings, handling your own self-told lies and tough truths, and creating a limitless mentality. On Story Tuesday, Amber shared lessons learned the hard way about the mess of personal and professional development, how to uncover your hidden perceptions, and leverage the uncomfortable process to open new vistas in life and business. If you haven't yet, go back and check out episodes 22 and 23. Today, I'm talking all about metrics and measurements, but not by diving into the numbers. Today, I'm talking about the consequences of how and what you choose to measure as your success benchmarks, key performance indicators, and business goals. Before we dive in, I wanted to share that the Business Couch with Dr. Yishai is brought to you by Adaptability Coaching and Consulting. If you lead a six or seven plus figure business and experience a drag or dip in your growth, if you notice diminishing engagement or passion in your business, if you want to eliminate exhaustion and burnout in yourself or your teams, if you sense that you or your company would grow faster and stronger if you could just pivot efficiently and effectively when circumstances change like they have so much in 2020, then you've got an adaptability problem. Adaptability coaching and consulting will give you and your business the psychology and neuroscience-backed tools to understand and leverage core adaptability skills through the unique 3D adaptation framework. You can learn to harness and leverage core adaptability skills to grow yourself and your company. You can learn to become fast, flexible, and formidable. You can learn to turn tough circumstances, reactions, and exhaustion into energy, excitement, and excellence for you and your company. To learn more, 
Go to dryishai.com slash coaching. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's topic. Be careful what you measure. A serious storm front blows in, knocking down trees, power lines, and causing tons of damage and loss of power for over 5 million people in the tri-state area alone. I am not one of them. But my internet goes down. In early August of 2020, smack in the middle of our disastrous pandemic when I'm working from home and caring for patients, along with all my other business and personal responsibilities. I call my internet company and they assure me they're working on it. They tell me they expect it will be back up within eight hours by the end of the day. So I do my best. I manage to find a way to make it through my day, but obviously it's not a long-term solution. I go to sleep that evening, a little bit stressed from the day's challenges, but fully expecting that when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll be back up and running like normal as assured by my reliable and trusty internet service provider. Now, I'd been with them for a couple of years, and I'd never had this kind of an issue before. So I had no reason not to be trusting them. Only, the internet is out the next morning, too. And when I call them again, I have to wait an hour just to get an update. I go to their website in the meantime, looking for updates or some kind of customer service, number that I can call, and there's nothing. In fact, the website says that the internet in my area is up and running, which really tips me off. I finally managed to get a hold of someone in customer service, and after what I can best describe as gentle persuading and probing for some concrete information, they assure me they just got word from their repair teams who arrived on site less than an hour ago that it should be up by the end of the day, but it doesn't. So I call them back and, well, you probably know what's coming. And on it goes for several days. Meanwhile, I'm scrambling to get this sorted out. Finally, after six days, 14 calls, six chats with customer support, and a couple of direct messages to their support team on social media. All I get is repeated assurances that it will be back up soon, with estimates that grow from eight hours to 24 hours to 48 hours to finally saying they have no estimate whatsoever. And I have had enough. So I sign up for their competitor, who somehow didn't have a minute of disruption through the storm or the week after. Now all I have to do to finally be rid of this headache is to cancel my old internet. So I go back to my old service provider and I log into my account thinking that I can, you know, just cancel from my account online, only to find that there's absolutely no way to cancel my service online. So I call the service line, and not only do they confirm that there's no way to cancel online, they tell me I can't cancel my service with them either, and then they promptly hang up on me. Have you ever been hung up on while you're trying to cancel a service? Because it happened to me twice that day. Finally, I get the answer I need after speaking with customer support. Can you imagine having to talk to customer support to stop being a customer? It seems a tad ridiculous to me. The answer that I get from them, I have to call their retentions department. So in order to cancel, I have to talk to people whose only job it is to not let me cancel. In fact, retentions generally are part of the sales divisions in large corporations. Their job is to hold on to business and even grow it if they can. So now I have to talk to a salesperson and tell them I want to stop paying and cancel my service. I'm thinking to myself, like, how ludicrous I am so frustrated. 
I almost decided to just keep letting them bill me so I don't have to deal with the headache. Almost. And then the retentions department runs me through their obstacle course. They put me on hold. They tell me that they don't have anybody, ask me for a callback number, and they give me a few time slots to sign up for an appointment. So I sign up for one, and then they hang up on me. And then they don't call me at our appointment time, and I'm sitting around waiting for a half hour. So finally, I call them back, and I get put on hold again, this time for an hour and a half. Finally, when I get to talk to a salesperson on the retentions team, she asks, how can I help you? And I tell her, I'm canceling my internet service, and I was told I need to speak with the retentions department to cancel it. Mind you, at this point, I'm practically gritting my teeth, and I'm putting on a smile just to sound pleasant and positive. Are you moving? No, no, I just want to cancel my service. Really, I thought I made my intent plainly clear. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Can you tell me why you want to cancel your service? She fires back at me. I'm fuming on the inside. I spent over three hours just trying to do something that I can do on Amazon in a couple of clicks. So I take a slow... Deep, calming breath and steady myself. You know, I'm not interested in talking about that. I simply request that you cancel my service. I am trying so hard to just keep it clear, plain, and simple. Then I can't help you. Click. She hung up on me. Why on earth would she do that? Here's what I think because she's in sales, in the retentions department. And how is success at her job measured? Probably by business she retains or upgrades. I don't know for sure, but I imagine every account she cancels is recorded as a loss on her ledger. Why would she want it on her record? Her job isn't to help me or get me what I want. It's to fulfill her quota. The more she shows she keeps customers at the company, the better they tell her she's doing. Success is measured by sales, the number of customers who stay or even upgrade, and how few accounts are lost on her tally. Not that I hold it personally against her, though, if truth be told, I do hold it against my ex-internet service provider, like an ex I just couldn't get rid of. So here I am, still unable to cancel my internet, having to go back into the revolving door. In all honesty, it only reinforces to me that I don't want to stay with them. At this point, even fixing the internet and giving my account some credit wouldn't change my attitude. And that's what happens when it's all about the numbers and keeping them up. It's about sales, number and percent of retained customers, growth and increasing revenues. It isn't about me. I'm a thorn in their side because I will not get with their program, with their goals. And they're a real pain in my side too. In fact, that led to them making it harder to be able to cancel. When you measure something, especially a singular outcome like revenue, it pushes all your energy and resources into ensuring that process. Everything else by default becomes less important, matters less, gets less time, attention, and energy. So guess who got almost no time, attention, or effort from them? This guy. And it cost them. Maybe not a lot because I'm only one customer, but there were thousands upon thousands of people who lost their internet. And my story isn't unique. In 2016, the news broke a surprising story 
millions of fake bank accounts were being created for clients of the Wells Fargo Bank. Customers were shocked to receive credit cards, debit cards, and notifications about fees for failing to fulfill the terms for accounts they never created or allowed their bank to set up. At first, the blame was laid on bankers and managers at the branches that were implicated in the fraud scandal. Then it shifted upward to upper management for putting supreme emphasis on one measurement, the number of new accounts opened. Measuring growth and success by the number of new accounts opened placed the goals and pressure on everyone below to do whatever it takes to accomplish that one measure. Success wasn't about serving clients or increasing assets held at the branch by clients. It was opening new accounts. Performance wasn't about streamlining processes, reducing inefficiencies, increasing customer service, and thus it wasn't measured in client surveys, time to close issues, ensuring necessary documentation, funds, and fewer errors in setting up new accounts. It was all about volume of accounts. One measure to rule them all. So guess what went out the window? Ethics, rules, regulations, the customer's interests, quality, and service. All right out the window. Here's another really well-known example. Enron infamous for its accounting scandals that were uncovered in 2001, Enron used a complicated set of strategies to place one measure at the forefront, profitability, and more specifically, the appearance of profitability. You see, there were parts of Enron that were profitable, but there were a lot of parts that were not, and they represented significant financial costs or liabilities for them. In order to appear profitable, Enron used a number of questionable, confusing, and fraudulent practices to create the illusion that they were more profitable than they were. Most widely known was the creation of special purpose entities, limited partnerships, basically a separate legal entity of a company where they transferred parts of their business that were losing money out so they could keep reporting on record that their profits were up and continuing to rise. But even that itself wasn't enough. They also had to inflate and at times completely fabricate profits that didn't exist. One way that they did this was they reported expected profit from a deal as though it were already real and they already had it in the bank. And so they put them on the books even before they existed. All of that to continue looking profitable, which then served to encourage people to buy more stock, which continued to create the image that the company is profitable and stable. Meanwhile they still had to deal with all those losses. Eventually, it caught up to them when an analyst took a closer look and published an article that sent the stock price tumbling and led to more investigation and more uncovering of all of their tactics. Even more recently, we had the college admissions bribery scandal. William Rick Singer, CEO of The Key, used a bunch of different strategies to help students get into college. He used a mix of bribing techniques and connections to accomplish one goal. That one measurement was getting into your dream college. He bribed psychologists to create false reports and get extra time for prospective college students on the SAT or ACT exam. He bribed high-scoring test takers and test centers to allow someone else to take the exam for that student. 
He bribed athletic coaches at universities to create false sports credentials. He got parents on board and got them to pay him millions. How did he do that? He emphasized one measure, diminishing everything else as though it really didn't matter as much. Because all that mattered? The metric of college admission into a name brand institution. When all that matters is a single metric, everything else can get pushed out of the way or explained away. Sometimes with a rhetorical device as simple as a question, do you want your kid to get into the college of their dreams or not? It's sneaky because it does something subtle. It pits the one metric, the one thing that matters against everything else. And of course, when there's only one thing that matters, then nothing else can hold a candle to it. It can be really persuasive. What it leads to is ignoring or manipulating every other variable to achieve that one metric. When you make it clear that only one metric matters, everything else is at risk of being pushed down, explained away, or even altered drastically to support rather than impede the process when you pit it against the one metric. That kind of pitting can be direct or indirect. In fact, there's a concept in business where that kind of pitting happens in a subtle yet aggressive way. It's called delegating to the floor, where every task or goal is put on the table and assigned based on its importance. The most important things are taken up by people higher up, and then everything else is delegated or passed down the line. The next most important things are passed down to the people below them, and so on. Eventually, everyone in the company has their plates full, and whatever is left it gets delegated down to the only place that's left, the floor, because it's not important enough for anybody to take it. How is that process determined? What decides the level of importance? This is critical, because often it's determined by the metrics that we use to evaluate and make decisions. If all that matters is getting into college, then no action seems out of bounds, no tactic unreasonable, no ethic or law worth holding more than getting into your brand name college. If all that matters is opening new bank accounts, then every other action may slowly, silently, and scarily be changed in service of accomplishing that goal. And that is how your teams get their bonus, their promotion, their praise for success. Then that is what you teach your teams to do. If all that matters is keeping people signed up to your internet service, then it's okay, maybe even desirable, to make it hard to cancel. It is acceptable to have no way of canceling online. It is reasonable to forestall their request, ask the same questions over and over again, keep them on hold for hours. It is okay to hang up on them. And speaking of, after all of that, I really needed to take a break. Since I already got charged for the month, I waited a couple of weeks before charging back in. And when I called, apparently somebody got the message already because my account had been canceled. How they did, I have no idea. I never got a hold of someone who told me they would take care of it. My best guess is after submitting requests to the retentions and their customer support, it got put on record somewhere on my account. And somewhere down the line, someone who was taking a look at it said, okay, we'll close it. But nobody thought to tell me about it because that's not what matters and not what they measure in their company. So don't sleep on measures and goals that you are setting. 
carefully consider and review them. Look at how they shape the practices and strategies that you and your company choose. Get intentional and don't let other important values fall to the wayside. And on that note, I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today on The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai. If you enjoyed today's episode, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It helps grow the show and gives more people like you the ability to learn and grow. You can also click the share button to share today's episode directly with someone you know who would enjoy it. The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai podcast artwork is made by Sam Barkadari, show notes by Yishai Barkadari, and music by www.purple-planet.com. The advice and opinions of the host and guests are our own. I'm a psychologist, but not your psychologist. The conversations and content of this podcast do not contain or create any psychology practice, diagnosis, or therapist-patient relationship with either the guest or the listener. So do your own research before using anything from this podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember, our thoughts and reactions affect our actions. By listening, we can learn from the challenges others face and the choices they make so that we can make better decisions and get better results. 